Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2023, the 1015th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, You will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Now, we've been talking about what's happening over in Israel And more specifically, the reaction to the narrative about what's happening in Israel. Because the truth of what's actually happening in Israel is clearly unknowable, considering the information we are being given and the sources from which we are being given that information. There is no reason to find any of these sources reliable. There are extraordinary claims 
everywhere that cannot be backed up sufficiently, particularly from those sources in order to trust those sources and believe that they are authentically representing a reality that's occurring in the real world. It's simply too difficult to know for certain what's happening over there. And everybody kind of knows that, but nonetheless, we're being asked to give our moral approval, our stamp of approval to whatever Israel wants to do to handle the problem that we are told they are having over in the Middle East. Now, while we cannot know the truth about what's going on over there, we can know the truth about what people here are saying about it, how people here are reacting and what people here are supporting with their reactions. And I know that it probably seems like that should be a secondary concern and that what is actually happening over there should be our primary concern. But I'm not sure that's true. And part of that, of course, is the impossibility of legitimately knowing what's going on over there. But the other part is that we don't have much of a chance to impact what's actually going on there. We have a chance to impact how all of the reactions to the narrative here will go. And that is something real in the world that we can have an impact on. For instance, if our federal government decides to send $15 billion more in aid to Israel over the next few weeks, we can be sure that they're probably going to continue sending more money over to Israel in the future, just like they did with Ukraine Unless there is blowback for their actions that goes directly to them that everyone here knows about. If that happens, they might be less inclined to send this sort of aid next time or to more accurately create this regime fiat currency out of nothing, put it in the coffers of the state of Israel and then tie the value of that fiat currency to an extension of the indentured servitude of each and every person born in the United States of America or working here after being shipped over in the slave trade. We are not going to control what the Israeli military, the Israeli defense forces are going to do in Gaza. But we can affect the political climate in America and we can incentivize and punish certain responses from people in positions of power over here. And that has a real cumulative effect in the world that potentially could change future events. So I hope that makes sense. We talked on Monday about how we were being coerced into giving our consent to the state of Israel and their justifications to do absolutely whatever they want in response to what happened on October 7th. But we don't have to give our consent. We can say that terrorism is a clear evil in the world that must be dealt with, dealt with swiftly, dealt with directly, dealt with violently wherever necessary, and that our prayers are with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people, and also with Palestinian and Arab people who probably aren't having a very nice time right now either. We cannot assign collective guilt against a group of people 
particularly not on the basis of who it is claimed they voted for in obviously stolen elections, and then say that if they are all killed in the process of Israel taking revenge, that's okay, based on all the content we've seen that confuses and upsets us. Now, in terms of the reactions that we've seen, particularly from Conservative Incorporated, the GOP elite and establishment, and pretty much every Ron DeSantis supporter, is a freakout of rather spectacular proportions. Each and every one of them is falling in line and supporting the state of Israel as loudly and proudly as they can. And it seems that they believe that they earn extra credit for being as callous as possible. They are actually virtue signaling to their peers about the levels of violence they believe are justified by Israel in response. It's basically to the point where people have been corralled into this belief system where it's acceptable now to potentially incinerate every single Palestinian if that's what it takes to protect Israel. On a daily basis, they are spreading and making go viral every piece of anti-Jewish content they can get their hands on. They are talking about who should be allowed to say what and who should be punished for their speech. It is essentially the way the Uniparty left acted in 2020 in response to the grand George Floyd psyop. And throughout that time, while the Uniparty left was going crazy about how everyone's racist and everyone's attacking minorities and they should be allowed to say whatever they want about white people and men and blah, blah, blah. All of that we heard about from the Uniparty right. We heard all about cancel culture and how bad cancel culture is. We heard about how important free speech was and how conservatives were being silenced and censored. And then people with a certain viewpoint got banned right off the Internet and they never said a thing. But we heard for months, if not years, about how bad cancel culture was. The podcast circuit, the intellectual dark web of it all. They loved talking about cancel culture. Even the New York Times started talking about cancel culture. The Uniparty left and Uniparty right would have debates about cancel culture. And here we find ourselves right back in a cancel culture. But this time led by the Uniparty right. And that's all good. So they want to censor people after not defending people who supposedly are their allies from censorship in years past, but saying how bad censorship was in theory. We have them recommending violence on a massive scale simply because Israel deserves to commit all that violence because of what happened on October 7th when paragliding go-karts evaded the defense forces of the country with the most military expertise in the world, or so we're told. And they are out in force to call people ghouls and bigots and anti-Semites if they ask any questions about the events we're told are really happening, or about what the proper response should be if not theirs, or whether there might just be more going on than the paragliding go-kart attack. I mean, are we really going to pretend this is just about some organic terrorist incident and not about resources and the transportation of those resources, just like everything else? It's not about bigger geopolitical issues. It's not about the fact that the regime's fiat currency 
is collapsing worldwide. It's not about the balance of power in the world shifting away from that global regime and its proxy states. It's not about the dawning of this multipolar world. No, it's about the paragliding go-kart attacks. And we should all recommend the maximum amount of killing necessary until the craziest people online decide that justice has been meted out. That is what we are dealing with from Conservative Incorporated and their media mouthpieces online. The sorts of people who are out there supporting Ron DeSantis, the sorts of people who went along with most of COVID and the vaccines, the people who went along with the insurrection narrative, the Ukraine narrative, of course. And you know what I have left to say, the people who believe that Joe Biden really did get 81 million real lawful American votes. They are all in on the narrative 100 percent. And naturally, What goes along with that is the maximum possible application of emotional torment and reputational damage for anyone who chooses not to go along. Now, why are they doing that? They certainly are not doing that because they believe it's going to change events in the world in the Middle East. I can't imagine they believe that Israel's defense forces are looking at them being all influency online and thinking, Well, I guess we better take the advice of the people who have taken the GOP's rising star and ended his career in one year. We can be quite certain they're not doing that. What they're trying to do is influence public opinion so that they can have the consent and the support to keep doing what it is they want to do over there in the Middle East on behalf of the global regime. A lot of these people have no idea what it is they're even supporting. And you think that's crazy. They must have some idea and they're just out there being dishonest about it. Well, really? Did they check to see if our elections were stolen? Did they spend some time really finding out for themselves whether or not the regime was lying to everyone about the elections? No, they didn't. They don't look carefully at things. They have a position to support and then they go to mainstream sources to find links to articles and studies that make their case for them. The uniparty right operates exactly the same as the uniparty left, and together they play a game of links and sources. And they try to play that game with everyone else, regardless of whether or not anyone else wants to play. Links and sources is a child's game. You don't actually have to play that game with them, but they sure think they're winning arguments out there. They're out there attempting to manufacture consent. They want everyone to go along with the central narrative. They need everybody back on the same page because that is how they get to do more in the future. It's not about what Israel's got going on right now. It's about saying the things the regime needs said so that the agenda can keep on pushing forward. Now, the truth is, no matter what your position is on what's happening over in the Middle East, no matter what your position is, on Israel's statehood or the right of the Palestinian people to have their own homeland. It's quite clear that the narrative effort online isn't working and it's getting crazier. They are heightening the language. They are increasing the drama and they are rationalizing and justifying higher and higher degrees of violence and retribution, whatever it takes. They say it has gotten to the point where it is basically a contest 
They are trying to make sure that everyone knows they support the state of Israel more than everyone else. Well, Glenn Beck on his show has taken it to an entirely new level. Check this out. I don't know why I was born. But there is something about the state of Israel that connects deeply to me. To have the privilege to stand with the Jew is a tremendous honor, spiritually. So I want to read a letter that I wrote that I am sending to the state of Israel. To Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the honorable officials at the state of Israel. In this moment, I have chosen to ask you for citizenship in the state of Israel. I have nothing to offer but my voice of support. And some might say that my support might be more valuable as an independent voice. Perhaps they're correct. But my request for citizenship is not about words. It is about deeds. Why, one might wonder, would I want to embrace a heritage and identity that is so ruthlessly hunted down again and again? Yet it is precisely during such moments that we must choose to stand. I anticipate no privileges or exemption from the state of Israel. I instead yearn to align myself with those willing to rise, to fight, and sacrifice for the fundamental right to live. Is this not what both Israel and America embody? In closing, my desire for dual citizenship does not stem from any expectation of gain, but from a deep-rooted belief in standing with what is right and true. Ten years ago, I took my children to Israel for the first time, but we first visited Auschwitz in Poland. I told them, you cannot understand Israel without the Bible or Auschwitz. May Israel remain an eternal flame of hope, a beacon of resilience, and a testament to the enduring human spirit. Now, just to be clear, that video has been clipped a few times, not by me. It was posted on X by Citizen Free Press. I think it may have been edited by Glenn Beck's team over at The Blaze, but I'm not 100% sure. It doesn't seem to me to be exploitative or misrepresentative in any way, but if someone wants to make that complaint, they are certainly welcome to. I'm not responsible for that editing, and I want to be clear that it was edited as Glenn Beck read his letter to Israel. It doesn't include the entire letter. Now, Glenn Beck is getting a lot of praise out there from Conservative Incorporated, all the people who are in the contest to show that they support the state of Israel more than all of the other people in that same contest, which is basically everybody supporting Ron DeSantis and even a bunch of people who say they support Donald Trump. And I guess I'm a little confused about why he's getting all this praise and applause for making this video, for writing this letter, for asking the state of Israel for citizenship so that he can stand with what is right and true. I mean, Glenn Beck has a podcast, a show that is watched by probably hundreds of thousands of people, I would guess, maybe millions. Doesn't he go out and stand for what is right and true every day? 
He's telling hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people about his affinity for Israel and how much he supports Israel and how bad it is if anybody says anything bad about Israel and how they can kill whoever they want for as long as they want in response if they want because the state of Israel and the Jewish people are the same thing. Therefore, in order to protect Jews from anti-Semitism and terrorism, the state of Israel gets to kill whoever it wants forever because otherwise we'll have another Holocaust, I guess, as people like David Frum and Alan Dershowitz think, as we discussed yesterday. And as Glenn Beck himself alludes to in this video, he has to let everybody know he visited Auschwitz and then he visited Israel. That's how he knows that the only way to stand for what is right and true in this instance is to get Israeli citizenship. And hopefully they will allow Glenn Beck to become a citizen of their country so that he can have dual citizenship. He says that that's what he wants. I'm not sure exactly how that makes Glenn Beck a patriotic and conservative American, but to a whole bunch of neocons and Ron supporters, the GOP elite and establishment, they think that this is what shows Glenn Beck is one of the most patriotic and conservative Americans you could ever imagine. What is more patriotic and conservative as an American than to be simping on air for Israeli citizenship? It's not good enough to just support Israel as an American citizen. You have to beg them for citizenship. He wants status from Israel equivalent to his status as an American. And I suppose if he gets that, then he could just renounce his American citizenship altogether. I mean, who needs to? We'll just go along with Glenn Beck's branding as a patriotic conservative and assume that he must be because he's spoken at so many conservative establishment conferences. And he's interviewed all our favorite people in the conservative establishment, all the characters. And hey, Steve Dace, that garbage pail kid looking sociopath who's shaped like a softball and constantly screaming about how Trump supporters are idolaters and cultists. He's at the blaze, too. So it's a great squad over there. It does make me feel bad for the good people over there, because with Glenn Beck and Steve Dace, it's making it hard to believe that any of the people over there could be good. But Glenn Beck wants to let the world know that supporting Israel online and repeating the slogans about how Israel gets to do as much violence as it wants that's just not enough. That's just not going to do it. You need to go on screen and beg them for citizenship. And by the way, it's also worth noting that Glenn Beck usually goes on screen dressed in the most ridiculous ways. And yesterday he went on screen in costume for Halloween, like a little kitty cat or something with face paint on his career at this point is largely just a public shaming and humiliation ritual, it seems. But I'm confused because Glenn Beck is obviously so invested in defending the state of Israel, but he didn't do all that much to defend the United States of America when our country was usurped by the global regime through our stolen elections that happened in broad daylight in full view of everyone. 
backed by overwhelming evidence and over two thirds of the country understanding that Glenn Beck and the conservative establishment do nothing to defend the United States of America against the threat of stolen elections, not only by foreign actors, but in league with American citizens whose loyalties like Glenn Beck's seem to not be primarily invested in America. And that's right now in what I think most people can see as a time of war, even if they wanted to say that America is not at war and we're not in a global information war. None of that. We didn't have our country usurped. If they want to deny that entire thing, they still wouldn't deny that parts of the world are at war. And since these people are the ones making the for globalism on the basis that everything is ultimately connected. We are in fact in a time of war and Glenn Beck is pledging his support to a foreign country after turning a blind eye to the stolen elections that are destroying America. They're all pledging their unending support for Israel, but Israel wouldn't be in this situation if they hadn't already ignored our stolen elections. The world's in the state it's in because we have an illegitimate president in the United States of America and everybody knows it. So let's take a brief look at the history of dual citizenship. This is from the Wikipedia entry on multiple citizenship. By the mid 20th century, dual nationality was largely prohibited worldwide, although there were exceptions. For example, a series of U.S. Supreme Court rulings permitted Americans born with citizenship in another country to keep it without losing their U.S. citizenship. At the League of Nations conference in 1930, an attempt was made to codify nationality rules into a universal worldwide treaty, the 1930 Hague Convention whose chief aims would be to completely abolish both statelessness and dual citizenship. Now, for the record, statelessness is a term that describes someone who is not considered as a national by any state under the operation of its law. So they were trying to pass a universal worldwide treaty to abolish statelessness and dual citizenship at the League of Nations Codification Conference in 1930. The 1930 Convention on Certain Questions Relating to the Conflict of Nationality Laws proposed laws that would have reduced both, but in the end was ratified by only 20 nations. However, the consensus against dual nationality began to erode due to changes in social mores and attitudes. By the late 20th century, it was becoming gradually accepted again. Many states were lifting restrictions on dual citizenship. For example, the British Nationality Act of 1948 removed restrictions on dual citizenship in the UK. Got to wonder why that happened in 1948. Isn't that the year that the British crown started Israel? Strange that their policy on dual citizenship would start that year. The 1967 Afroyam versus Rusk. Ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court prohibited the U.S. government from stripping citizenship from Americans who had dual citizenship without their consent. And the Canadian Citizenship Act 1976 removed restrictions on dual citizenship in Canada. 
The number of states allowing multiple citizenships further increased after a treaty in Europe requiring signatories to limit dual citizenship lapsed in the 1990s, and countries with high emigration rates began permitting it to maintain links with their respective diasporas. The article notes that some countries grant citizenship based on ethnicity and on religion. Israel gives all Jews the right to immigrate to Israel by the law of return and fast-track citizenship. Dual citizenship is permitted, but when entering the country, the Israeli passport must be used. Now, talk of dual citizenship between U.S. and Israel for people in positions of power is seen as a conspiracy theory, or it has been online, the subject of fact checks, because there have been times where people have pointed out that a certain number of congressmen and senators, for instance, are Jewish and then would have this right of return. And that leads to speculation that they may have dual citizenship and then may as a result of that, have dual loyalties. But as one of my astute followers on X pointed out today, dual loyalties is an oxymoron. And I think that he's making a clever point. Dual loyalties, really, when it comes down to it, means competing loyalties. And one of those loyalties is going to win. And again, this is not a conspiracy theory of any kind. It's just not possible to have equal loyalty to two things that could at some point be in opposition. Under some certain degree of test, most people would choose one over the other. That's the point. And to the extent that a congressman or senator might choose another country over America, American citizens have an interest in determining whether or not that politician is actually in office to serve the interests of America and Americans or the interests of another country. It's not about Israel in any way at all. It would be equally true no matter what country was being discussed. People have heard stories about how John F. Kennedy used to have his loyalty questioned on the basis of his Catholicism. Would he put the Vatican above the United States of America? Would his commitment to his religion and the demands of his religion via the Pope be prioritized over his commitments to America and his duty to the country. Now, Catholicism is certainly an exception because there is a singular religious leader who has all sorts of policies and gives all sorts of commands about how Catholics in the world should interact with politics and political issues. And you have the Vatican, which is a global city-state, and the Pope as the sole leader of that foreign land. So it's not hard to see where the concerns arise. And it's not anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish or anti-Israel to wonder the same when it's America and Israel. In fact, it's pretty clear it's not about the religion, and it is about the competing loyalties between two foreign countries, knowing that ultimately one of those will win out. Will it be the country that one sees as its religious homeland or the country that one sees as its country of birth, the country it's serving in a formal capacity? That's a question that matters and has nothing to do with religion. And while this issue has been fact-checked to death, and it may well be true that those congressmen and senators do not as it stands, have dual citizenship right now, if they are of Jewish heritage, 
and could emigrate to Israel at a time of their choosing based on the law of return, then they may as well have Israeli citizenship and dual citizenship right now. It would be like having zero dollars in the bank, but knowing that you could tap into a million dollar trust fund whenever you decided to. You can't go around calling yourself broke at that point. And if it's not a big deal, then why isn't it just all out there? Why is this the sort of thing that needs to be fact-checked and called a conspiracy theory and be labeled as anti-Semitic when it has absolutely nothing to do with the religion? And of course, that's because, as we have talked about, the Jewish faith and Jewish people are always conflated with the state of Israel as a quote-unquote Jewish state. When people question dual citizenship and dual loyalties, a.k.a. competing loyalties, it's called anti-Semitic and accusations are made that the only reason it's even coming up is because of animosity toward Jews. And naturally, this goes hand in hand with the claim that any discussion of globalism and the global regime is also conspiracy theory talk, conspiratorial thinking, when people should have every right to be able to question those representing them, generally speaking illegitimately, and whether they happen to be working on behalf of that global regime whose agenda they are constantly implementing and talking about in public all the time. Now, I talked earlier about other reasons why this conflict may be happening over there that don't include this organic and spontaneous paragliding go-kart attack that evaded the world's greatest military defense system along a border with lookout points every 500 meters as these slow and noisy paragliding go-karts landed at the Desert Music Festival. And there has been some chatter online about a canal being built through that land and out to the Mediterranean Sea. And that is not just some random conspiracy theory. From The Guardian on April 1st, 2021. Suez 2, ever given grounding, prompts plan for canal along Egypt-Israel border. The blockage of the Suez Canal by the beached ever given container ship has prompted fresh international efforts to find an alternative to the world's most important shipping corridor. UN officials are understood to be reviewing plans to construct a new canal along the Egypt-Israel border, having previously dismissed ideas for a much longer route through Iraq and Syria as too hazardous. The blockage of the Suez Canal is estimated to have cost hundreds of millions of pounds, as well as threatening Europe's vital supply chains from Asia, bringing everything from toilet roll and iPhones to takeaways and PPE. The UN had previously commissioned a feasibility study from the international tunneling company, OFP Lariol, which estimated Suez 2 could be dredged within five years. The canal would run in a near straight line into the Gulf of Aqaba in the Red Sea. And you will remember back to that period in 2021 where that transport ship, the ever given the container ship, blocked the Suez Canal for over a week and caused shipping delays that cost some $10 billion. And we all remember all of the conspiracy theories having to do with that story. It's interesting to see these issues come around again. This is from Reuters, February 21st, 2021. 
Israel to link Leviathan gas field to Egypt LNG plants, minister said. So that's liquefied natural gas. Another pipeline issue alongside a commercial transport issue, just like Ukraine. Israel and Egypt have agreed to build a pipeline to connect Israel's offshore Leviathan national gas field to liquefied natural gas terminals in northern Egypt, the Israeli minister said on Sunday. The Palestinians also said they had signed an agreement with Egypt's energy minister, who visited Israel and the occupied West Bank on developing a gas field off the coast of Gaza. Israeli energy minister Yuval Steinitz hosted a meeting with Egypt's Tarek al-Mola as both countries look for new ways to expand the development of East Mediterranean natural gas. Israel's Leviathan Field, located 130 kilometers off Israel's coast, already supplies the Israeli domestic market and exports gas to Jordan and Egypt. Its shareholders include Chevron and Delek Drilling. Leviathan's partners have been exploring options to expand the project, including a floating LNG facility or a subsea pipeline to link up with LNG terminals in Egypt that have been idled or run at less than their potential capacity. Steinitz said the two governments were moving ahead with the pipeline plan and were working on a formal agreement. This is CNBC from a week ago, October 25th. Economists fear major disruption if the Israel-Hamas conflict is not contained. About halfway down the article, the Middle East is home to the world's busiest shipping routes, including the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Strait of Hormuz, heightening the economic peril associated with escalation. Any expansion of the war into the Sinai Peninsula and Suez region increased the risks of an attack on energy and non-energy trade flowing through the Suez Canal, and that accounts for almost 15% of global trade almost 45% of crude oil, 9% of refined, and also 8% of LNG tankers transit through that route. The EIU's Thaker explained, you choke off those points and you create major disruption, not just to oil prices, but the whole supply chain of the world for energy and other goods as well. You can actually go down a fairly deep rabbit hole when looking for pipelines, canals, access points for shipping and transport, of all sorts of resources, energy primarily in that region. Back to the Guardian article, they noted the foreign office said it was aware of the plans, this being for the Suez 2, which are being overseen by the UN Committee for Trade Routes Uniting Economies. Sources said the UK would be prepared to play a leading role in any project to help, quote, level up the region and build back better. We have the expertise and could share our preliminary designs for the proposed tunnel links to Northern Ireland, said an official who also pointed to the prime minister's successful track record in large scale infrastructure projects. Now, it's not clear that this is what's happening and that this is what the priority is or that this is what this whole event that's happening now in Israel is all about. But it certainly plays a part and it's something that we should be watching. Because there is no doubt that the global community led by Israel right now is trying to move people out of that area. And so let's move to that subject. This is in the independent UK from today. The headline Israel Hamas war Rafa crossing opens as hundreds of foreign nationals 
and injured evacuate. Hundreds of foreign nationals, including Britons and Americans, and dozens of seriously injured Palestinians have been allowed to leave Gaza. As the Rafah crossing opened for the first time since the war began more than three weeks ago, numbers making it out were unclear, but some were turned away in chaotic scenes as desperate families begged guards to be allowed to cross to safety as heavy bombardment by Israel continued. The UK Foreign Office said the crossing to Egypt would be open for, quote, controlled and time limited periods, end quote, to allow foreign nationals and the seriously injured to leave. A communications blackout meant those trying to flee do not know whether their names are on the list of permitted evacuees. It comes as the only cancer treatment hospital in Gaza is out of service after it ran out of fuel, health officials said. And the Palestinian health ministry warned that Al-Shifa, the primary hospital in Gaza, had less than 24 hours of fuel remaining. And damn, I heard it was really bad to go after hospitals. I mean, I remember being told that in Ukraine. It's just different in Gaza because Gaza is not Ukraine. Gaza is on the bad side, whereas Ukraine is on the good side. So what happens to innocent people in hospitals is totally different. Egypt will take in 81 wounded people from Gaza and treat them in the hospital. Gaza's general authority for crossings and borders told the New York Times. Earlier, the Israeli military admitted launching a wide-scale airstrike on the densely inhabited Jabalia refugee camp, where potentially, quote, dozens of civilians were killed. What? They launched an airstrike on a refugee camp and killed potentially dozens of civilians. That's not the sort of thing we've been led to believe. Now, this went down yesterday, and The Independent has a piece on that. Israel defends strike on Jabalia refugee camp, thought to have killed dozens. Israel is defending its decision to launch an airstrike against Jabalia, a densely settled refugee camp in northern Gaza, claiming the operation was necessary and proportionate to go after an important Hamas commander. The attack, which leveled buildings and left a massive crater, killed over 50 people, according to separate estimates from the health ministry in Gaza and the director of the local Indonesian hospital, Al Jazeera reports. Civilians are among the dead, according to the health ministry. At a briefing attended by the independent, IDF officials said eliminating Hamas commander Ibrahim Biari justified the bombing. The Israeli military accused Biari of helping lead combat operations against the IDF in the region and of being a key part of the planning of the October 7th Hamas surprise attack on Israeli civilians that ignited the war. It was not only a legitimate military target, but an important military target to strike, and all things were factored in, including the possibility of non-combatants being affected, IDF spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus said at the briefing. And skipping down just a bit, when asked by the Independent whether the IDF thought the strike was proportionate, Lieutenant Colonel Conricus repeated that it was a, quote, military objective of high importance, and we assess that dozens of multiple Hamas operatives were killed. This must be a language thing. Once we know more and have confirmed information about other casualties, if there are others and what their extent will be, I will be able to answer that. 
Some observers criticized the strike as an unacceptable attack on civilians. Egypt strongly condemns the Israeli inhumane targeting of an entire residential square in Jabalia Camp, northern Gaza, and left hundreds killed and injured. The Egyptian foreign ministry told Turkish state media. The Israeli security partner added that the strike was, quote, a blatant violation of the international law, end quote, that will deepen the crisis of war. Jumping down again. The IDF official also noted during the briefing that civilians were warned to leave northern Gaza ahead of the unfolding Israeli offensive. We have called civilians and non-combatants to evacuate numerous times, Lieutenant Colonel Conricus said. Human rights officials have said that Israel's, quote, bone chilling warnings to over a million civilians to leave northern Gaza ahead of the IDF's heavy duty assault on the territory were all but impossible to obey. The Palestinian territory is blockaded on all sides, and the IDF has targeted civilian infrastructure like a school for refugees and cut off or destroyed key services like electricity, telecommunications and fuel delivery leaving ordinary Gazans with few options for safety or mobility to escape the fighting. The main border crossing out of Gaza into Egypt has also been sealed except for limited shipments of humanitarian aid. This will only lead to unprecedented levels of misery and further push the people in Gaza into the abyss, the United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency said shortly after the warning was given. The scale and speed of the unfolding humanitarian crisis is bone chilling. Gaza is fast becoming a hellhole and is on the brink of collapse. Now, we've been told consistently for the past couple of weeks by Conservative Incorporated that the media, when it's reporting on things Israel does that aren't so great, it's because the media itself is anti-Semitic. We talked about this a bit last week. All of these media organizations are owned by people and organizations affiliated with the global regime, tied directly into the superstructure of the global regime. And many of those are owned specifically by people of Jewish ethnicity. The idea that the media is anti-Semitic is already crazy on its face. But the truth is that conversation doesn't even matter here. This is the Egyptian foreign ministry. And then they've got someone from the U.N. Palestinian Refugee Program. There's quotes from people from Doctors Without Borders. Now, none of these people are people who I would deem to be authoritative sources and believe. But the Egyptian foreign ministry is saying it as well. And they actually have skin in that game, whereas the independent U.K. doesn't have any skin in the game. They are just propagandizing on someone's behalf, as always. And the discussion about the reporting is largely irrelevant because they are quoting a source with the Israeli Defense Forces. They're not denying that they had an airstrike and bombed a refugee camp. They're saying that it was worth it. It was OK that they did it because they were targeting a Hamas commander. And naturally, as in all other cases, we have to accept their word for it that they were targeting a Hamas commander and that they killed a Hamas commander, even though Hamas says that's not true. Now, this is from The Cradle, a news outlet that describes itself as a journalist driven news outlet covering West Asia. And among its followers on Twitter are some pretty reputable people when it comes to 
geopolitical reporting, like Mint Press News, for instance, Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone, Vanessa Beely, who did fantastic reporting throughout the Ukraine episode, and many other respected independent journalists. They have a substantial website, a substantial following, and seem to take their jobs very seriously. I'm sure that despite that, they are considered by some to be extraordinarily biased and probably anti-Semitic or whatever. As you will see in a second, it really doesn't matter with this article. This is from October 29th, a few days ago. Leaked. Israeli plan to ethnically cleanse Gaza. Israeli culture magazine Mekomit published on 28 October a leaked document issued by Israel's Ministry of Intelligence recommending the occupation of Gaza and total transfer of its 2.3 million inhabitants to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. The document, issued on 13 October, identifies a plan to transfer all residents of the Gaza Strip to North Sinai as the preferred option among three alternatives regarding the future of the Palestinians in Gaza at the end of the current war between Israel and the Hamas-led Palestinian resistance. The document recommends that Israel evacuate the Gazan population to Sinai during the war, establish tent cities and new cities in northern Sinai to accommodate the deported population and then create a closed security zone stretching several kilometers inside Egypt. The deported Palestinians would not be allowed to return to any areas near the Israeli border. The article includes comments from a man named Itay Epstein, whose Twitter profile says he is a senior humanitarian law and policy consultant and a special advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council. It also lists his location as Israel. So between his name and his location, I am going to assume that he is not a rabid anti-Semite. He writes, breaking Mechamit expose shows that the directive to deport 2.4 million Palestinians out of occupied Gaza and onto Egypt and beyond has been officially endorsed by Israel's Ministry of Intelligence on 13 October, a war crime in the making. Israel's Ministry of Intelligence deportation directive outlines the four stages. One, a call on Palestinian civilians to vacate North Gaza and allow for land operations. Two, Sequential land operations from north to south Gaza. Three, leaving routes open across Rafah. Four, establishing tent cities in northern Sinai and the construction of cities to resettle Palestinians in Egypt. He goes on, I have not been able to detect as of yet an agenda item or government decision endorsing the directive of the ministry. If it was indeed presented and approved, it would not likely be in the public domain. According to Haaretz, the prime minister's office stated that, quote, this is an initial policy document of which there are dozens at all levels of the government and security branches. The question of the day after was not discussed in an official Israeli forum, which is now focused on destroying the governmental and military capabilities of Hamas. Back to the article. The existence of the document does not necessarily indicate that its recommendations are being implemented by Israel's security establishment. The Ministry of Intelligence, headed by Gila Gamliel of the Likud party, 
does not control any of Israel's intelligence agencies, but independently prepares studies and policy papers, which are distributed for consideration by the government and its security bodies. However, recent statements by Israeli government officials and actions by the Israeli army in Gaza suggest the plan is indeed being implemented. Since 7 October, Israeli officials have repeatedly issued warnings to Palestinians to move to southern Gaza in advance of a looming ground invasion. Israel has imposed a total siege of Gaza, cutting off food, water, fuel, and electricity. The siege, combined with intense Israeli bombing that has killed over 8,000 Palestinians, the majority women and children, threatens to make Gaza uninhabitable. An official at the Ministry of Intelligence confirmed that the 10-page document is authentic, but, quote, was not supposed to reach the media, Mekovit noted. According to a right-wing activist, the document from the Ministry of Intelligence was leaked by a member of Likud. Leaking the document was an attempt to find out whether, quote, the public in Israel is ready to accept ideas of a transfer from Gaza, end quote. The document unequivocally and explicitly recommends carrying out a transfer of civilians from Gaza as the desired outcome of the war. The article lists the phases of that transfer as described by Itay Epstein. So let's skip down toward the end. The document recommends beginning a dedicated campaign that will motivate Gazans, quote, to agree to the plan, end quote, and make them give up their land. Gazans should be convinced that, quote, Allah made sure that you lost this land because of the leadership of Hamas. There is no choice but to move to another place with the help of your Muslim brothers, the document reads. This is pretty extraordinary stuff. Further, the plan states the government must launch a public relations campaign that will promote the transfer program to Western states in a way that does not promote hostility to Israel or damage its reputation. The deportation of the population from Gaza must be presented as a necessary humanitarian measure to receive international support. Such a deportation could be justified if it will lead to, quote, fewer casualties among the civilian population compared to the expected number of casualties if they remain, end quote, the document says. So let's just take a second on that. Part of the impetus for Gazans to leave and part of the pitch to the international community, specifically in the West, as they describe in the document, is to make it seem to people like this is benefiting the population of civilians. Israel will kill fewer civilians this way if the civilians agree to leave their homes and instead go live in tent cities a.k.a. camps that they can't leave and they can never return to their homes or anywhere near Israel's borders. The plan specifically includes a public communications campaign to get people in the world to support this. The document also states that the U.S. should be leveraged to pressure Egypt to take in the residents of Gaza and to encourage other European countries, and in particular, Greece, Spain, and Canada, to help take in and settle the refugees who will be evacuated from Gaza. 
Finally, the document claims that if the population of Gaza remains, there will be, quote, many Arab deaths, end quote, during the expected occupation of Gaza by the Israeli army. And this will damage Israel's international image even more than the deportation of the population. For all these reasons, the recommendation of the Ministry of Intelligence is to promote the transfer of all Palestinians in Gaza to Sinai permanently. So essentially, they are going to commit war crimes in order to prevent being blamed for even bigger war crimes. And so that this messaging works, they want people in the West to promote these ideas as well. So all of this is pretty extraordinary. The Israeli Ministry of Intelligence prepares this paper, this plan, and then leaks it for public consumption to see what the public reaction is to this plan will be. And the plan calls for a phased deportation, a transfer of all Palestinians to the Sinai Peninsula, where they will be set up in tent cities, camps, and never allowed to return to their homes. And at the same time, there will be a massive PR campaign to the West to convince the people of the West that all of this is necessary and justified and actually charitable. They're doing this because if they don't, their all-out attack on Gaza will surely kill more innocent civilians. So deporting all 2.4 million of them is actually being done for their benefit. And as always in these refugee situations, other countries are just going to have to take them. They're going to send a whole bunch of people to Europe. And that'll probably go over just fine. It's not like Europe is having its own immigration crisis with immigrants from the Middle East. Oh, wait, they are having a massive immigration crisis with immigrants from the Middle East who we were told were just escaping climate change, just like all those immigrants coming here, creating our massive immigration crisis. And as all this is going on, we have patriotic American conservatives at least by branding, trying to convince us that anything and everything the state of Israel wants to do in response to what happened on October 7th is justified and necessary. And if we don't support it, we are bigots and anti-Semites. And that's true if we question anything they say or any of the content that they provide as the justification for all of these things they want to do. We are not supposed to recognize that a formal PR campaign is being directed at us. We're not supposed to see the fact that all of these people who say they are independent thinkers are delivering the exact same message to us using the exact same language at the exact same time, responding to the exact same pieces of content and trying to achieve the exact same goals. And we've seen this over and over and over again. We saw this throughout COVID. We saw this around the election and everything to do with election fraud. We see it from the uniparty left when it comes to events like all the ones surrounding the race war they were trying to ignite during the summer of love. We saw this in the vaccine communications. We saw this in the Ukraine communications. We've covered documentation on this show of the global PR campaign when it comes to COVID and how they were targeting micro-influencers in countries all around the world, whether it's priests or community leaders, trying to figure out 
who would be able to deliver the messaging that needed to be delivered from normal citizens so that everyone would get back on the same page. And we're all supposed to pretend that all of this is natural, that these people are investing their real feelings in all of this. And the truth is that some of them might. They might be influenced by all these stories, all the content, everything they've ever been told about the history of the conflict in this region, about the history of anti-Semitism, about the history of the state of Israel. They might believe all this stuff and be more than happy to accept the money to push these ideas out there. And yes, naturally, I'm sure that many of them are doing it without being paid. I would point to their motivation being the incentive and punishment structure within the party of false decorum, but plenty of people actually are being paid and are being directed. This is a well-orchestrated PR campaign that we are witnessing. And this is not some anti-Israeli or anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. It's just a PR campaign like any other PR campaign that has been launched by the global regime and its global state propaganda media. Most of their PR campaigns have absolutely nothing to do with Jews or Israelis or the state of Israel. So if it's not anti-Jewish, anti-Israeli or anti-Semitic to point out those PR campaigns, it can't be to do it here either. It doesn't become hateful to point out PR campaigns just because this particular PR campaign is linked to the state of Israel. I'm not even suggesting that the state of Israel is the primary driver behind this PR campaign. I'm actually stating explicitly that I believe it is the global regime that is the primary driver behind this PR campaign. And I don't believe we can conflate the global regime with the state of Israel. The state of Israel happens to be, in large part, a global regime proxy, just like Ukraine is. But that certainly doesn't mean they're the same thing. And we actually do have to be able to point this out and discuss it if we are going to be the American people and eventually create a society and a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. If our loyalties are going to be to America, then we need to be America first. And the only way to do that is by stripping everything else away from these issues except for the aspects that affect America and can be supported under an America first understanding, which means that we don't give special consideration to these issues because it's Israel and because of the history as we've been taught it. If people want to make special exceptions to Israel and for Israel on Israel's behalf because they have other citizenship or other loyalties or other priorities, that's all good. It's okay if people want to put Israel first, just not if you're in the American government. And if you're going to do it, you should probably communicate that to your audience rather than pretending to be a loyal, patriotic American conservative. If you can't be honest about what your priorities and loyalties actually are, then it's probably you that thinks there's something wrong with those loyalties and those priorities. It's not me. I am all good with people having whatever loyalties and priorities they want, as long as they're not lying about it and trying to take advantage of Americans in the process. 
And as long as they're not advocating for American blood and treasure to be spent on their priorities that are specifically not America first. It's that simple. It's got nothing to do with religion or ethnicity. And I would say the exact same thing about every other country in this world. I'm half Italian. I would never tell my Italian relatives that they shouldn't have some loyalty to Italy. But I would say if your loyalty to Italy is greater than your loyalty to America, then you shouldn't be serving in American political office and you shouldn't be telling Americans what to do while portraying yourself as a patriotic American conservative. It's just real simple. Be honest about where your loyalties and your priorities are. And people can argue that you can support both at the same time. But if you're spending more time in three weeks justifying the state of Israel reacting in whatever way it wants to the events of October 7th, then you have spent in three years discussing stolen elections in America, you're going to have a real hard time convincing me that you support both equally. And if you're on your big show talking to hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of people and you're using airtime to beg the state of Israel for citizenship, I'm going to think something is deeply, deeply wrong. And when people in the so-called American conservative establishment are applauding Glenn Beck for doing that and they too don't give two dams about election fraud. I've really got to wonder about how much they prioritize America at all. Now, just a note before I go on scheduling, I'm going to try to get an episode up tomorrow. I'm going to try to get an episode up on Friday, but both of those will be a little bit up in the air. I am officiating the wedding of my good friend, Patrick Gunnels over the weekend. So it's going to be a little bit touch and go Monday. Very unlikely that I will get an episode up, but I'm going to try tomorrow and Friday. So hopefully I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!